This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you're listening in today. I'm excited to have joining me on the program again today in segments two and three. Returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. I'm going to get Carl's rather shocking inflation forecast for the next 18 months. And I'm going to get his take on why we have these supply chain shortages And the explanation that he gives, I think, will resonate with you. So again, that's in segments two and three of today's program. I would encourage you to stay tuned for that. And if you've not yet received a copy of my best-selling book of last year, Revenue Sourcing, it outlines a retirement planning strategy for the post-pandemic economy. And you can get a complimentary copy of that book as well as some bonus information by visiting the website myrevenuesourcingbook.com. The website, again, is myrevenuesourcingbook.com. Just let us know where to mail the book, and we will be very glad to do that. In this segment, I want to go back and revisit with you something that I wrote about in the New Retirement Rules book uh, back in 2015. Now, I'm doing this because I think the topic now is a lot more relevant than it was back then. And a lot of what I talked about in the book is now coming to pass. Now, in the book, I talked about something called the K-Wave. Now, K-Wave is short for the chondritief wave. And if you're not familiar with a chondritief wave, a chondritief wave is named after a Russian economist by that same name. Mr. Kondratiev originally got his marching orders from Joseph Stalin, who all of you, I'm sure, know was the rather iron-fisted ruler of Russia. Well, Stalin hated the notion of capitalism, and he gave Kondratiev the task of conducting economic research that would prove that capitalism and free markets were inferior to other systems. Unfortunately for Mr. Kondratiev, after researching the topic and writing a book on the subject titled The Major Economic Cycles in 1925, he concluded that capitalistic societies work just fine, but they're subject to boom and bust cycles. Now, I've been researching the Kondratiev wave for a long time, and my research on the topic has me concluding that these boom and bust cycles have historically been very manageable, and they get out of hand only when the central bankers and politicians get involved and try to influence the cycle outcomes. So, for example, when we had inflation in the past or we had recessions in the past, these were often inventory-driven, and they resolved themselves very quickly. Today, the inflation that we're seeing is really the result of currency creation. Now, before I get into everything else I want to talk about in this segment, let me just finish the story of Mr. Kondratiev. As you can probably imagine, Stalin did not appreciate the work of Kondratiev to any degree, and he made Kondratiev pay. After Kondratiev's book was published, Kondratiev was relegated to a Siberian prison, and ultimately he died at the hands of a firing squad in 1938. Now, a lot of economists have expanded on the work of Kondratiev. 
Mr. Ian Gordon, who has been a past guest here on the program, is one of those economists. Now, Mr. Gordon, when he breaks down these Kondratiev cycles, these Kondratiev waves, these K waves, if you will, he labels each wave, of which there are four, after seasons of the year. There is the economic um, cycle that we label spring. There's the economic cycle we label summer. Another we label autumn. Another is winter. And you can go all the way back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in the mid to late 1700s and see that these cycles or waves have existed. Now let me give you just a brief description of these and bear with me because where I'm going is that where we are today is, I believe, at least somewhat predictable. Well, the spring cycle has the economy experiencing a gradual increase in business and employment. As the economy improves, consumer confidence gradually increases. Consumer prices begin a gradual increase. Stocks go up. Gold goes down. And debt levels are low during the spring cycle. Now, as with the seasons of the year, spring follows winter. The summer cycle follows the spring cycle. During summer, we see an increase in the currency supply. We see inflation. We see gold prices go up. We see stock prices go down. Then we have autumn. Money is plentiful. Gold prices fall. Stocks go up. There's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of financial fraud. Real estate prices rise. Debt levels are astronomical. And autumn is followed by winter when there is a crippling credit crisis. Money becomes scarce. Financial institutions like banks find themselves in trouble. There are a lot of bankruptcies at the personal, corporate, and government levels. Interest rates go up. And gold prices go up as well. Now, it's my belief that we are in the winter cycle presently, and we have been for some time. If we go back and look at the financial crisis of a dozen years ago, there were a lot of bankruptcies then in the private sector and in the public sector, which whenever you see bankruptcies, that's all the evidence you need to realize that debt levels are unsustainable. Instead of having debt being purged from the system, as is really the function of the Kondratiev winter cycle, We've seen the Federal Reserve engage in currency creation or quantitative easing, and the result of this currency creation has been to temporarily mask the consequences of debt excesses, which we're still going to have to deal with at some future point. See, the reality is that since the financial crisis of a little more than a decade ago, debt levels have grown. And a lot of the economic growth that we, we think we've experienced hasn't really been growth at all, but instead it's been debt-fueled consumption. Now, if we go back and take a look at the last time there was an autumn season followed by a winter season, we find ourselves in the 20s and 30s. Now, in 1913, as I discussed on last week's program with my guest Lawrence Reed, then-President Woodrow Wilson signed into law 
the Federal Reserve Act, the Federal Reserve Act, which made, which established really the Federal Reserve as the central bank of the United States, and immediately the Federal Reserve began to engage in currency creation. They did so at that time by reducing the backing of the U.S. dollar by gold from 100% backed by gold to just 40% backed by gold. That allowed the money supply to expand by 62%. And I'll talk about this more in the last segment of today's program, but it's interesting when you look at from 21 to 29, 1921 to 1929, the money supply expanded by about 62%. As a result of easy money and easy credit, debt levels rose to the point that they were unsustainable. And then we went into or entered the economic winter season of the 1930s, which we all know today as the Great Depression. So again, here is more proof that these cycles repeat themselves. Now we can go back from 1821 to 1836, and we find an autumn season that ended with the Panic of 1837. We can go back uh, to the time of the Civil War, when banking acts were passed that allowed for currency creation. It led to an autumn season, which ended with the Long Depression of 1873. These cycles, when you study history, repeat themselves. That's why I believe where we go from here is quite predictable. Today, debt levels are much higher than they were at the beginning of the Great Depression when measured as a percentage of the economy. I believe a similar outcome to the 1930s is unavoidable. We will see, I believe, a collapse in asset prices and we will see banking failures once the currency creation stops. Now, the currency creation will stop. It will be intentional and proactive, or it'll be reactive as the population looks for currency alternatives in earnest. And when you take a look at the emergence of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum and others, it's obvious that the populace is now waking up to the fact that perhaps currency alternatives are needed. Now, when I start to talk about these cycles repeating themselves predictably, that surprises a lot of people. I talk about it in the Revenue Sourcing book. And again, if you're just joining me, I'd love to send you a copy of the book for free. All you need to do is go to the website, myrevenuesourcingbook.com. The website, again, is myrevenuesourcingbook.com. Just let us know at the website where we should mail your book, and I'll also include for you some bonus information. The subtitle of the Revenue Sourcing Book is The Retirement Planning Strategy for the Post-Pandemic Economy, and it's designed to give you strategies to consider as we enter the rest of this winter season. So again, the website, myrevenuesourcingbook.com. And I'll also mention to you that we do a weekly headline roundup webinar that is live. And you can get the replay of the headline roundup webinar at our website, which is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. Retirementlifestyleadvocates.com is the website. Just go to the headline roundup replay. Um, I, uh, every week, put together a podcast just explaining what's happened that week in the headlines. 
I'll be back after these words with my special guest, Carl Denninger. are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is returning guest, uh, Mr. Carl Denninger. Carl is a prolific author. You can read his work at market-ticker.org. Uh, there is also a market-ticker.org slash NAD for no advertising, where Carl posts uh, some very interesting work. I would encourage you to check it out. And I uh, always get a lot of feedback uh, when Carl is on the program. So, uh, Carl, welcome back. Looking forward to another conversation. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, hey, thanks for having me on. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the obvious. Uh, the Fed said that, uh, you know, a year ago inflation would be transitory, um, which is an interesting choice of words. But it appears now that it's here to stay. How do you see it? Well, yeah, let me uh, cite the, uh, the notable Milton Friedman. <laughs> Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, <laughs> which, you know, I mean, there's plenty of people that, uh, that think that he ought to be regarded to the tinfoil hat brigade, but I I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely, an, you know, an, it, that's an issue. And um, the reality is, is that we've spent the last two years uh, violating every legitimate rule of reasoned monetary and fiscal policy, all of it emanating from Congress. When you really get down to it, uh, you know, I mean, you can you can excuse it as being an attempt at uh, COVID countermeasures or whatever you want, but the fact of the matter is, is that we've emitted an utterly enormous amount of unbacked credit into the system, and and exactly what you would expect to have happened when you do that happened. So, I mean, it shouldn't surprise anybody that, you know, when you put several trillion dollars, you know, what's the total now? Six or eight trillion or something like this that's been uh, been put into the, the economy uh, by yeah, congressional fiat. Eight trillion fiat. dollars, yeah. Yeah, and this is all by congressional fiat, all right? This is not the Federal Reserve doing something. This is this is Congress passing bills that, uh, you know, said, uh, this is, you know, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, we're, we're going to pay people $600 a week to sit at home and drink beer and smoke bong hits instead of work because they're not essential. And your essential worker neighbor has to go to work and make sure that you have groceries in a grocery store. Okay, well, that's that's fantastic that you did all these wonderful things. But, uh, you know, for the people that, that got the benefit, of course, they certainly liked it. But what ends up happening inevitably when you do this, and the other thing is that over time, we've already seen this on a 12 to 18 month time lag. It, it's every time. 12 to 18 months before it shows up. And then, 12, gee, it's about 12 to 18 months later, isn't it? <laughs> well, well, Carl, when you bring up that time lag, which I think is extremely interesting, if it's a 12 to 18-month time lag, I mean, we're just seeing the beginning of this, aren't we? Yeah, that's the, the, the bad news is that it works the other way, too. Okay, so if you remember when Carter was president, uh, I do. A lot of your listeners uh, probably do. Some don't because they're too young. But if you remember when Carter was president and Volcker was, uh, you know, was running the Fed, uh, there are a lot of people that, that essentially their criticism of Volcker is that he kept going long after he had to, because the 
on the, as as it takes 12 to 18 months when you put in too much credit, it takes 12 to 18 months for the bad things to happen when you take too much out. Okay. And so he went a year at least by these people's reckoning beyond where he needed to go. And as a result, the, the economic damage that came from it uh, was considerably worse than it needed to be. I, I disagree with that analysis, by the way. I think that if you overshoot one way, you have to overshoot the other by the same amount. Otherwise, you end up leaving some of the damage there. Um, but that is the argument that has frequently been raised. So essentially what this means, though, is that if you stop today, that this, this problem is not going to go away for another year and a half. Well, Carl, you, I want to just go back in time here a minute because uh, I was visiting um, your website, and I noticed that uh, about 10 years ago this December, you wrote a book that was titled Leverage, How Cheap Money Will Destroy the World. And in the description of the book, it says that, um, um, that throughout history, uh, you, you in the book lay out the fact that uh, currencies are debased when moneyed and powerful interests pull the levers of government and policy to enrich, enrich themselves at the expense of the masses. You look like a prophet. Uh, tell the listeners a little bit about that book and, you know, how things have kind of played out as you indicated they would. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, the, <laughs> I wrote Leverage because in the, in the aftermath of the Lehman meltdown, and in the time leading up to it, which, which I saw coming a year and a half before it happened, uh, I noted that what banks were doing was paying dividends out of money they didn't actually have. They were counting the promise to pay people later as actual income, what they were calling capitalized interest, uh, which is an accounting term. The capitalized interest shows up in your balance sheet, but it's not cash. And so, but of course, the money you pay out in dividends is cash. The person you give it to is actually have cash. And so this inevitably would lead you to run out of cash if you did it for long enough. <laughs> and so that the, the FDIC under the law has an actual obligation to stop that. They, they have a, there is a statute called prompt corrective action that says that you cannot do this. If you attempt to do something like this, it destabilizes a bank's balance sheet. You actually get closed immediately. Okay, you don't get to wait until your bank goes bankrupt. You get the doors are shuttered. That's it. You're done. You're, you're thrown out, and they merge you into somebody who doesn't do things like this. Well, of course, the FDIC didn't do that, and and the result of this was a was a raft of failures, um, all of which started out, of course, in the housing market, but it wasn't it wasn't exclusively there. Okay, and that's uh, you know that's just kind of where that is. So um, the, the the reality of it is uh, is is that you have these people who took this you know this process and essentially corrupted it. Uh, they knew they'd get away with it; that the federal government would not do what it was supposed to do. Um, they they got their money. They they essentially stole it through legal means uh, because they knew that enforcement would not come. And when enforcement did not come, then the economic dislocation came instead because. That was the predictable outcome. And so what did the government do? They emitted a huge amount of credit into the system to cover up all these insolvencies instead of putting the people who did it in jail and allowing those businesses that did that to, to go under. And, and for those who think that we needed to bail out those banks, uh, there's always going to be a bank on the corner. If the one that's there today goes out of business, there'll be a new one tomorrow because people need that service. Someone will provide it. 
Uh, I, I love the idea of being able to buy somebody's building at five cents on a dollar because they went under. That, that means I can provide the service at a lower cost. That's good. <laughs> okay. But it doesn't make the people that have power and money very happy when you let that kind of thing happen. So, um, and now, you know, with COVID as the excuse, we have done, we've done what happened in 2008 and 2009 on steroids. And so we are now getting the impact of that. Well, and that's where I was just going to go, Carl, because, I mean, things have not gotten better. This this temporary program of quantitative easing that, that really started about the time your, your leverage book was, was released um, has, you know, as, as I said at the time, as you said at the time, this is a slippery slope and this is not going to end well. So for our listeners, how does this end? Well... And it, there's there's two ways it can end. One is that the people who are doing it stop before there is a complete dislocation and, and destruction of the standard of living of everybody in the country. And the other is that we we end up with something that, uh, in the benign case, looks a lot like Argentina. Um, that's very unlikely in the United States because, unlike Argentina, uh, we we are very fractionated as a nation. And as a result, what you're likely to get is something that looks like Bosnia, which, of course, is horrifying. But uh, the the probability of this degenerating into uh, essentially uncontrolled violence, if they don't cut it out, is relatively hot. Well, Carl, here you have Washington debating, uh, you know, how many additional trillions of dollars to spend. Um, and, of course, the, the, rhetoric, the rhetoric is this is a net cost of zero, but we all know that's just rhetoric. Um, it, it seems that uh, that we don't have any cooler heads that are going to prevail. It seems that there's going to be more spending, and that's going to be funded through uh, borrowing and, and currency creation. So is, uh, is the latter outcome you described inevitable in your mind? Well, I wouldn't say it's inevitable, and, I, and, and the reason is this. Uh, there were plenty of people that have thought it was inevitable several times in the past, including in the late 1970s and early 1980s, and it turned out not to be. Um, there are you know, there are plenty of crazies among the, uh, the Congressional Caucus, including some that are supposedly, uh, allegedly constitutional uh, government people, uh, you know, they they claim they're Republicans. I don't know. I don't know that we have actual conservatives anymore. I guess we, you have Republicans and Democrats, but I, I don't know that you have actual conservatives. Uh, but there's the there are people out there, even within the the Democrat Party, who are putting their hand up and saying, um, "Excuse me," Manchin being one of them. And so I, there there is a recognition that there is a problem and a cost with this, and and. How far that goes and whether it stops before the insanity goes too far is, is very difficult to know. And, and again, the reason is that the, the results of the crazy don't get you immediately. They get you a year or 18 months later. Okay, so, um, you know, where is the point at which you have you've done the roadrunner thing, right, where the coyote runs off the cliff and then he hangs there in space before gravity takes over and gets him? All right, there's that there's that period of time where he thinks everything's okay, <laughs> even though there's 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 no floor underneath him, um, and and if you go there, then you're screwed. But I I don't, I, you know, I I don't think that's an inevitable outcome at this point. Well, I'm chatting today with Mr. Carl Denninger. I'd encourage you to check out his 
prolific writing at market-ticker.org. The website, again, is market-ticker.org. Uh, and the clock, Carl, says that uh, we're going to have to leave it there for this segment, but we will return again after these words. Stay with us. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen, and I'm joined on today's program uh, by returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. Carl's website is market-ticker.org, uh, and there's uh, two parts to the website, the, the the advertising piece and the piece where there is no advertising, and uh, Carl covers uh, different topics uh, on, on both parts of the site, and I'd encourage you to check it out. Uh, Carl, there's talk about... Uh, intensifying supply chain disruptions. There's talk about uh, store shelves being even emptier by Christmas this year and that it's going to get pretty ugly. So uh, let's start with uh, just your comments on that. Well, that's that's something that uh, I've talked about in, a, in the context of basically everything that the government and its regulatory function in private industry do. Uh, and that's why we've got the problem. The the as, as I think everybody who listens to you knows the the purpose of a business is to make money. Okay. That's the first re, that's the first purpose. That's the second purpose. That's the third purpose. And <laughs> at the end of the day, they they all come down to what they make money. Okay. So it, it, given the ability to do that uh, without paying any attention to how many people you hose, uh, you will take advantage of everyone you can. And if you don't, your competitor will. So you're compelled to because otherwise he's going to beat you and you won't exist anymore. So the reason we need regulation and we need consistent application of laws to prevent that from happening, uh, it, it becomes especially complicated when you have international trade involved because it is always cheaper uh, to get use slave labor if you can find a way to do it, not go to jail. And of course, slavery is illegal in the United States, but it's not illegal everywhere. So, and, and there's lots of things that are effectively slavery, even though they're not called slavery. What's happened with the supply chain is that we have allowed a system to set itself up where there are pseudo monopolies. So you have, you have choke points that are controlled by a small number of parties or even one party in certain places. Uh, for example, Port of Long Beach. Okay. Um, that is interstate and international commerce. By definition, every single thing that comes into that port is an international shipment. That means it is under the exclusive control of the federal government under the Constitution. The state has exactly zero right to have one word to say about the rules and regulations regarding the loading and unloading and, and operations in that port, period. Um, and yet, California has put in place regulations regarding the age of trucks that are allowed to run there uh, that do not apply to anywhere else. That's just one example. You have many others. There are warehouses that have been hit by issues with labor. Um, Amazon is very well known for using computer metrics to gauge people's performance and getting rid of them uh, if they don't measure up. 
This is a nice way to get around the workman's compensation system that is supposed to prevent you from basically using up people until they're ready to fall over. Because if you do that, you're going to end up getting hit with the claims for, you know, for the illnesses and injuries. Well, if you can detect it before it happens, you don't have to pay. You just fire the person and get someone else. That works until you run out of people who are willing to take that person's place. <laughs> okay. So when you have these choke points, though, what you end up with is a situation where a container that comes out of China that's full of goods has to come off a ship, get on a train or a truck, or both in, in sequence, go to a place get unloaded, and come back, and has to go back to China, because you can't wave a magic wand to make containers appear out of thin air. So if you stop that process up somewhere, and you put a cork in it, then I can have all the ships I want off the port of Long Beach, but if I don't have any containers to go back, and I don't have anybody to carry them because the truck is halfway across the country in Ohio somewhere, waiting for a dock to free up at the warehouse because the, the warehouse owner has 20% of the people he should have. Everybody else told him to go stuff it and walk off the job. That container isn't there, and the truck isn't there to take the one that comes off the ship. If you build a process that allows people to exploit this, because a shipping company says, well, you know, you'd like your stuff there tomorrow. Oh, gee, that's going to be an extra $5,000. Well, what stops you from normally doing that? Well, the fact that there's another shipping company, right, that will undercut you. But what if there is no other shipping company because you've all got the same problems or even worse, you've all colluded together? All right. Now you have people that actually can make money by making the problem worse. That's bad. So we have all these things all throughout the system. This is why it's occurred. The Where the government... That the government caused this, what they should do and should have done months and months ago is align incentives between these different elements so that the only incentive that the shipping company has, no matter where it is, whether it's a warehouse operator, it's a trucking company, it's a rail company, whoever, is to get that box out of there. <laughs> okay. If, if you have that, if you have a driver sitting waiting for a dock, the first hour, he gets $100 from you. The second hour, he gets $200. Next hour, he gets $300. Right? It eventually gets expensive enough that you hire enough people to get that container unloaded right now. And so until Carl, you align those incentives, you're not going to fix this. So I heard you say a couple things that are causing these supply shortages, and I'd like to dig into those a minute. Um, the, the, these uh, the, these monopoly-like organizations that maybe have a profit incentive to slow things down. And then I heard you say also that we have a labor issue. So let's take the last one first. Um, sure. well, when, it, when it comes to these, these labor shortages, and I mean, I've driven through some small bergs uh, where, where I didn't even know there was a McDonald's that existed, and they're hiring people for $21 an hour, and they still can't find people. So in your view, what is or what are the core causes of this labor shortage? Well, first off, we, we paid people to sit at home <laughs> for a year, okay? And in that by itself is a problem. Secondly, we've created a labor environment for a lot of these people that they, they have absolutely no reason to go to work. Look, if, if you've, you know, you look at a lot of these places, they're like, well, you must wear a mask or you must have gotten a shot or whatever. And people say, well, you know what? Um, I would rather 
have myself or my spouse sit at home and raise the kids. By the way, we're going to take them out of school. We're going to homeschool them at the same time because we don't like what they're teaching. Um, And we're going to get rid of the second Lexus because we don't need it anymore. So now you've downshifted people's demand from a standpoint of what would force them into the labor market in the first place. And at the same time, uh, you know, the reality is, is that labor is always a negotiation at some point. There is a price at which people will go to work for McDonald's. It's just not what McDonald's, what the McDonald's is offering. So, you know, the, the problem with high prices is high prices. They, they tend to solve itself. But when you create a situation like this and you put these external costs on things, people push back. And that's what's happened. And so, you you know, you do the same thing happens in the warehouses. You, you have, you know, warehouse work is very physically demanding. It's tough on the human body. And, and if people have to eat and the best they can do is a warehouse job at, at you know, $12 an hour, well, they're, they're going to do it. Uh, but if I can go to McDonald's and I can make 20, why would I bust my butt and my body for 12? That doesn't make any sense. Why would I do that? So let's take the second. You you, you talked about uh, monopolies, or, or, or uh, uh, I think you used the term pseudo monopolies. So let's talk about uh, let's talk about that because I think that's something that a lot of people maybe aren't aware of. Uh, to what extent has or have companies in that industry consolidated? Well, it's it, there's there is a basic there's a basic two tier situation that are that is particularly the case when it comes to the trucking business. Um, and, and that is that you have the, the corporations, many of which have turned into essentially lease to own kind of circumstances where you have people that are contracted back to the, to the particular company and on paper, they may own their truck, but they really don't. Okay. And then you have independent operators. The problem is for those people that are not paid a salary, which is the majority of it, they get paid by the mile moved. So anything that causes them to sit makes them likely to turn around and say the blank to this and sell the truck and hang up the keys. Well, um, gee, so if I've got to sit at the port of Long Beach for four hours to wait to get a a load on, I don't make any money during those four hours. I I make nothing. And in fact, it costs me money because I have to pay, you know, so many dollars per month to, to, you know, the note on the truck. Uh, and that is a very serious problem. And when you when you consolidate the way that people are paid, and you take them out of the salary base or the hourly wage base, and you start paying them for piecework, then this kind of a squeeze becomes especially likely. And I think this is a big part of what's going on right now. So, do you see this changing anytime soon? And if so, what are the factors that are going to turn this around? Well, the only way it really changes is for the government. To, you know, I mean, again, this is all interstate and international commerce. Okay, so the states are, should not have any impact on this at all, and constitutionally, they don't. Uh, that doesn't mean they don't try to do it, like California. Uh, the federal government caused this problem, and and therefore they they the only way this gets fixed is if you have the federal government come in and align incentives. So the incentives have to align across the supply chain. So that your your incentive is to move product, and anything that you do that impedes that costs you something, and it has to cost you more than it does to sit. That's the problem: is that right now the incentives can be gamed by all the people involved. People are gaming it, and they're making money doing it. And until that stops, 
I don't think you're going to see a solution. Well, and I think too, Carl, in the time we have left, um, you know, I, I learned something in this segment. I, I don't think many, uh, m- many people that see empty store shelves uh, where, where there's a lot of items that, you know, were there a couple of months ago that aren't there now. Uh, I don't think many people understand this. Well, I, yeah, I don't think many people do either. I mean, everyone's trying to find some cheap, easy, fast thing. You know, you had, you had Biden come out and say that he's, he's, uh, you know, he's reached a deal with the Port of Long Beach to run 24-hour shifts. It's not going to do anything because the problem isn't there. It's everywhere. It's not in one place. You, 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 know, you pull a, a plug on a cork in one place, what good does that do you? Secondly, what he was talking about was you know, another 5,000 containers a month or something like that worth of capacity. Well, that's half of one ship per month. That's nothing. That's not going to do anything. The only way you're going to actually solve this is for everybody to have the incentives in the same place. And the incentive is the goods come off the boat. They get to the end person, wherever that end party is. Into the in, And, you know, if, if Walmart wants to stick the stuff in their own warehouse and let it sit there, that's that's fine because that's, you know, at the end user. But, the, but until that point, the incentives all have to be move the product as fast as possible. And until that happens... You're not going to close the loop because those containers have to go back to the source to be filled up again. Well, my guest today has been Mr. Carl Denninger. His website is market-ticker.org. I would encourage you to check it out. Carl, always a pleasure to have you on the program and always enjoy our conversations. And uh, we'll certainly have you back down the road. Thanks for joining us today. Anytime. Have a good one. We will return after these words. Dennis Tubergen, and you're listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Glad you're listening in today. And thanks again to Mr. Carl Denninger for joining me on today's program. I'm offering a free copy of the book Revenue Sourcing to all the listeners of today's program. Revenue Sourcing contains a retirement planning strategy for the post-pandemic economy. I explained in the first segment where I thought we were likely going, and I'll expand on that more in this segment. But if you've not yet gotten the book, go to the website, myrevenuesourcingbook.com. The website, again, is myrevenuesourcingbook.com. And let us know where to mail your complimentary copy. We'll be very glad to do that. And we'll also include some bonus information that I believe will be timely to where we find ourselves today. So let's go back and examine where we may go from here. Where do we go from here economically? How does it affect the money you might have invested in your 401k or your IRA? That's really what I want to focus on in this segment. In this past week, I ran into an article written by past program guest here, Mr. Alistair McLeod, And if you go to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates website, which is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, I have a link to the article, and I'd encourage you to read it. The title of the article is Waypoints on the Road to Currency Destruction and How to Avoid It. And I want to give you just a bit from that article because I think it can help us figure out where we may go from here. Now, Mr. McLeod, in his piece 
observes that central banks are really painted into a corner. And these are my words, my paraphrase, not his. One, they can protect their currencies and let their economies crash and burn. Or two, they can attempt to prop up their economies and markets via additional currency creation at the expense of their currency. So one, do they decide to protect their currency and see economies crash? Or two, do they try to prop up economies and financial markets at the expense of their currency? Now here's what Mr. McLeod says in his article, and I quote, The few economists who recognize classical human subjectivity see the dangers of a looming currency collapse. It can be easily avoided by halting currency expansion and cutting government spending so their, budget ba- their budgets balance. No democratic government nor any of its agencies have the required mandate or conviction to act so fiat currencies face ruin. So, Mr. McLeod says the solution to currency devaluation is simple. You balance government budgets so that currency creation becomes unnecessary. Seems simple, doesn't it? Seems straightforward. It also seems extremely unlikely. And I would be remiss if, at this point, I didn't address some of the rhetoric coming from Washington. Now, despite the rhetoric from a lot of politicians that insist the nation's fiscal woes can be corrected by taxing the billionaires, you just need to do a little simple math to prove that this doesn't even come close to solving the problem. In fact, it's like using a garden hose on a forest fire, to use an old analogy. You could have a wealth tax that is imposed that is far more draconian than the one being presently discussed, and it's still doesn't do much to fix the deficit spending problem. The truth is the politicians could confiscate 100% of the wealth of all the country's billionaires, and the deficit spending would begin again within a few short months, and that's after you sent all the billionaires to the poorhouse. So no matter how you slice it, no matter how many additional taxes you levy, you can't solve this problem by raising taxes. You have to cut spending. And McLeod, in my view, correctly observes that no one's got the conviction to act or the mandate to act. Now, there is an historical parallel to cover briefly where we might go from here. Murray Rothbard wrote a book uh, about America's Great Depression, and he noted that from 1921 to 1929, as I alluded to in the first segment of today's program, the money supply expanded by 62%. So here we had a nine-year time frame when the money supply increased by 62%, which resulted in a lot of debt being built up, and it, it was followed by a painful deflationary period of the 1930s that we, know, know, we now know or refer to as the Great Depression. Now, here's why this is interesting. When you take a look at how much currency has been created over the past, let's just say, less than two years, the currency supply has more than doubled. So if currency supply increasing by 62% led to the Great Depression, 
What is doubling the currency supply in less than two years going to lead to? What lies ahead? Well, Mr. McLeod in his article gives us an idea. And my question for you is this. Have you adopted the revenue sourcing approach to managing your assets? As I discussed in the first segment, it's my firm conviction that at some point, the full symptoms of this economic winter season will emerge and we're all going to have to deal with them. We may see inflation get a lot worse before these consequences emerge, as I discussed with Carl Denninger on today's program. But you need to be prepared, and to that end, I am offering an additional resource. If you're just joining me, I'm making available for free, no obligation, no cost, the Revenue Sourcing Book. This book was a bestseller on Amazon when it was released in 2020. It contains a retirement planning strategy for the post-pandemic economy and contains some strategies that you should consider using in your own personal financial situation to help protect you from what might lie ahead. Again, the website to get the book, myrevenuesourcingbook.com. All of our resources are available on our website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. I'd encourage you to check that out as well. That's all the time I have for this week, but I'll be back again next week. 